Welcome to Amusement Sparks, the theme park design show. I'm your host, Andrew Spawn, and with us today is a very highly qualified guest, Stephen Dinehart. Um, Stephen, why would I invite you onto this show, do you think? Do you have any any clue? Oh, yeah. This is what I'm all about, man. It was uh, cool <laughs> just meeting you at Gen Con and learning what you're talking about because it's you know been the focus of my life, you know, arguably all my life, but certainly uh, full-time professionally for in the past three or four years now. And, um, <laughs> it's crazy. It's uh, a topic of uh, particular interest to me. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit of like a brief version of kind of your, your background and, and you know, why, why you're involved in the, the theme park realm? Yeah. Um, you know, people often ask me, well, how did you get involved? And, you know, I guess I'm just lucky. Someone <laughs> called me, headhunted me one day and was like, you're perfect to do this. And it's probably not something I would have applied to do. Mm-hmm. You know, as a kid, I would watch, uh, you know, gosh, what was it even called? I, I don't recall right now. That show about the Imagineers, yeah. you know, that uh, Disney had. And I just I just loved it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, always enjoyed theme parks and whatnot. But um, I started creating experiences i guess i should you know i'm not telling the story very well so yeah i I made i I made games for a long time my first game design contract was in the late 90s with a company out of like geneva um i was at the time running a small creative division i was very young but it was the 90s and it was a startup and um uh we made a series of games for a virtual world that they had where they wanted kids to come play with cats and dogs and kind of had these sort of educational video game experiences pretty simple stuff before before social media but basically a virtual little island you could walk around um and play these little mini games um and uh yeah so then you know a few years after that i started working in AAA games on pc and console titles um initially as mostly a producer really uh, eventually started doing storytelling um, and, uh, you know, let's see, what was it? A few years ago, I did this, uh, crazy off the wall project where I sort of tried to blend everything together independently, uh, with a property I had developed called Pinky Elephant, um, and ended up creating what I call Pinky Elefante, um, and went out on a limb, used social media as a performance platform, uh, and did this sort of crowdfunding campaign as performance art bit and uh i really was going to make a game but it was also about creating a great story online uh, in real time in real time with my audience and um you know eventually it sort of got funded and i uh, released this game uh pinky elefante and uh nintendo called me and asked me to be part of uh, their independent developer program which is you know I've, i've worked for companies before and some of them are, you know, pretty big names, but this was the first time a publisher directly contacted me and asked me to, you know, independently do what I do, which was a, a really neat thing. Um, and then, you know, uh, at the same time, I started doing um, sort of actually out of the Pinky Elefante thing as well. This guy from the UK contacted me and said, I love what you're doing. And I started working with him to create uh, virtual reality experiences uh for mostly for festivals and galleries and stuff like that uh, in the uk and across europe um so i created a series of experiences with him they're sort of like um i'll say almost like an infinite runner where you're running through someone's album if that makes any sense so i take multi-track these sort of psych rock albums 
and kind of map them to space. And then you can use your body gesturally uh, to run through uh, some of these spaces. It was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. So then one day this headhunter called me, we started talking and uh, you know, Universal asked me to come on board to help them develop experiences. So, and it was actually, I mean, you know, kind of to my point earlier, I mean, it's a hot topic. So I didn't create mm-hmm. the position. You know, I mean, some positions I've created in the past, but, you know, they were like, oh, we're creating a special position for you. And um, I believe I was the second hire at Universal for a position called the Game Attraction Designer. That's awesome. And, and that was connected with the, like, Nintendo world? Yeah, so I was primarily assigned to Project 273, as it's known, which was Super Nintendo World, uh, which is currently being built out for uh, three of Universal's parks uh, in Osaka, Hollywood, uh, and uh, Orlando. Now, I forgot, it's also going to Singapore, so I should I need to update my, my lingo. Yeah, so four parks now it's going to. Wow. <laughs> That's so awesome. You've got exciting things in the works as well that I, I definitely at the end of the podcast want to get into some some detail about because that's kind of how we connected was at Gen Con. I saw a panel yeah. about this super secret kind of nerdy theme park <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that's like, that's my vibe. I need to find this guy. And we eventually connected and had a just amazing conversation. And I don't know, you're, you're an amazing get uh, to be on the show, which I'm, I'm super stoked about. No, it's a great program, man. It's uh, it's an honor to be part of it. And clearly, you uh, you know, you're right on the tip of uh, what's going on in industry because it's it's really a hot topic. Everyone's uh, trying to figure out how to sort of translate, um, you know, the video game or games in general into what we call three park experiences or location based experiences. Totally. Um, sort of little tangent. What's your connection to the term narrative designer? Well, that's one that I actually made up, essentially. <laughs> Admittedly, I called it a director at first. So um, uh, when I got out of grad school um, in, uh, I don't know, 2006, uh, one of my buddies from EA contacted me. Actually, I was at a conference and said, hey, I did this thing on Medal of Honor where there was sort of this guy that was like in charge of story and you know, maybe you can help me kind of develop that role for this uh, studio I'm at now, which was uh, Relic Entertainment in uh, Canada, in British Columbia there, and um, should I say Vancouver. And uh, yeah, so I've worked over the next six months with them uh, to uh, create a position that we call the narrative designer. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's I feel like a lot of people's dream job now. Yeah, it's weird, huh? It's weird like that. So um, yeah, so I was the first narrative designer. Eventually, they offered me the role, which was kind of funny because um, it took <laughs> right. a little while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's going on with that? But, <laughs> yeah, so, but eventually they did offer it to me, so that's cool. But yeah, now there's whole departments, and they teach it in schools, and um, you know, it's so, so serious that everyone tells me I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I no, just made this up, man. What are you talking about? No, so. that's that's awesome. You like uh, you planted some some important seeds there. You know, like that's a a thing. I feel like our culture was kind of hungry for, and then you know, putting a name on it is important because it allows people to seek it out and find it online, and that's awesome. So, thanks. Yeah, I mean, looking back at it, it's um, you know uh, one of these things where 
growing up playing games, the stories were almost always the most important part to me, right? Yeah. And as I got into sort of this hardcore kind of nerdy game developer culture in Los Angeles where I was at the time in grad school, uh, there was this big rift where it was like, you know, the illusion of Ludo narrative dissonance, right? This idea that, that gameplay and story are diametrically opposed. And I thought that was a load of garbage um, and was really focused on games as storytelling devices. Uh, and recently with uh, some of the folks I'm working with, which were you know designers I idolized, not so much knowingly as a kid, but I loved their products, um, is that they were story generating machines. And you talk to these guys about what they created at TSR back in the day, and they say, yeah, that's always what it was about, you know, is a, a story that you're experiencing with your friends. And um, that's that's the really meat, to, big meat to it, which is which is fun, which is why it's really fun when you start looking at uh, doing it in amusement parks or I was going to say amusement parks. <laughs> you can't. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's again comes back to the idea. Well, how are we going to tell the story in a way um, that you know guests become engaged with it? You know, we can talk about how serious the, the you know theme park in, industries actually is with, should I say, themed entertainment industry is the story. I found myself disappointed several times uh, from the inside. But we all know that that's, that's kind of the crusp that they often speak of as, as being the driver in a lot of these experiences. Yeah, totally. And and things like, you know, role-playing games are having a big moment right now, just as they did, I mean, pretty much always for, like, little subcultures. But now they're, they're so much more popular with with you know like actual play podcasts and video series and stuff it's it's all about the story and the rules are there to kind of make sure the story makes some sense and doesn't get too chaotic and cosmic and out of control so it's it's like video games or theme parks it's kind of we need to have some set of rules here so that we can all have more fun and it's can be more about the story than worrying uh where are the boundaries like the rules kind of have to make those things clear but uh, it all it all goes together, I think, and it's something people love these days. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah the, the RPG thing is, is still kind of hit me over the head. It's uh, it's just one of those things I'm just surprised about because I sort of just thought it would go away. I mean, I don't wish that it did, but um, I'm glad to see that they're you know back at the forefront and uh, you know a positive cultural force that. I don't know, everyone and their grandma seems to be playing now. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. You know, all the, the cool guys from my high school who didn't want to play role-playing games, or at least we were too shy to tell them about them, uh, they're playing games now and posting about it on social media. And it's like, man, it's it's cool how our society <laughs> has progressed. You know, it's it's awesome. here on amusement parks yeah let's do it man cool so we talked about several different topics but the one we we chose for today obviously is halo um the listener has already clicked on the episode of course but um we are (laughs) uh getting into it yeah let's let's see how we can take halo and make it 
a theme park. What's your connection with this uh, series? Um, let's see. I mean, you know, I I love it because it's it was initially a Chicago product, so that makes me happy. Um, you know, the original Halo, I didn't play too much. I played a lot of Halo Two uh, in grad school. Um, you know, we had a blast. We'd have two machines side by side and go out with four men on a machine and these parties um, and uh, just had a blast playing it. You know, it's it's clearly a big cultural force. And, you know, now we've got uh, Falcon's creative group with uh, uh, the outpost uh, that they're running, which I believe this is the final weekend coming up here soon in Anaheim, I believe, um, which is an interesting... I wouldn't say they tried to create a theme park, but they really kind of tried to create an experience for the Halo fans inside of the Halo universe. Um, and, um, you know, it's met with some success, but I don't think it's exactly what we're talking about here. So, you know, for me, it's sort of the genre, um, you know, working in this stuff. I realized very quickly that a lot of folks on a lot of sides of the spectrum are still stuck really in very primitive forms of game or should i say game styles um really basically still stuck with gallery shooters for the most part uh if you look at say ninjago the ride um or uh gosh uh, i can't even remember what the name of the toy story land ride is um which i should know uh, but basically the same idea it's a gallery shooter in a ride vehicle um, so how would you do a more of a single player experience provides some really big challenges, uh, let alone how you do sort of a multiplayer approach, uh, in a space, particularly with ones that, I mean, it's, it's battle based, right? So, you know, it raises some interesting conundrums. Definitely. And I, I think that this could be a huge, um, kind of evolution for the laser tag genre, kind of like how Halo itself was a big evolution of the S- FPS you know, video game experience. This is like FPS real life uh, simulation, not like actually running around with a gun, of course, but, you know, sci-fi yeah, I think you hit, you, FPS. Yeah, exactly. You hit it right there. I mean, that's that's really, I think, what it would be at the end of the day. I mean, I guess we could end the podcast here, but no. Um, <laughs> that was easy. I mean, it really would just, just be an evolution of, of laser tag. I mean, it's actually surprising that they haven't just bought I mean it wouldn't cost a lot to buy those guys out or run a weekend a lot of these zones and have it themed out and yeah I mean that's essentially you you could build out different maps you could build build out some of people's favorite maps you'd probably have to you know mess with scales a little bit right um, because but um, and then you could do it largely without an HMD although if you wanted to do that sort of bit where it was a little more mixed reality there's no reason you couldn't do that as well. Um, what does an HMD stand for, just for anyone who doesn't know? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, head-mounted display. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, you know, they're very very popular um, these days uh, as, um, you know, particularly in themed entertainment, people are, you know, there's this sort of fight against the screen, which I understand. And so at a place like Universal, it tends to be more screen-based, right? Because it was all about living in the movies. So there tends to be a lot more screens. Disney, on the other hand, wasn't about that. But, if you, you know, a lot of simulators... They tend to be screen-based, so um, the next evolution is not, you know, 3D, which we've already done, but, uh, you know, how do we put a screen, basically, on your face um, so that you can interact? If only Halo had, like, a famous helmet or something that we could have the park guests put on, 
Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, what could that possibly be? <laughs> it's kind of the the icon for the series, but that whole you know Master Chief, the like Spartan armor, I feel like is a an easy go to, and you could even include sensors and stuff built into there if you're going to do laser tag type stuff. Um, it seems like I mean that's so so obvious and logical that it it makes a lot of sense, and it is kind of weird that I haven't seen at least I haven't seen in my experience much really big like next generation laser tag stuff like most laser tag places feel the same as they did in the 90s um there's not much story there's not much really to it just run around and shoot people well and you can argue it's very very similar models too i mean it's in some ways augmented reality you have these digital devices however primitive they might be um you know the laser weapons themselves and usually some kind of wearable right um, so that you can detect when you've been shot. Some of them even have forced feedback. Um, I mean, I guess you can in some ways say that it's similar to some of the technology that's been used at the Void. But again, the Void experiences um, tend to be more like co-op against um, you know, hordes with a boss battle um, as opposed to any kind of multiplayer functionality. I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's to avoid people from running into each other and physically punching each other. It's more like, look out behind you instead of, I'm going to get you, which uh, can be, lend to more physical violence in, in real life. Yeah, I, I think it's it's uh, knowing the Void team and what they built it for initially. Because actually the Void started as part of Evermore Park, um, that park I hope helped open in Utah. It was sort of their e-ticket attraction. Um, That's so crazy. Yeah, and you know it's um, you know it's a walking experience. I'll say that. So uh, an easy way to get throughput, get people to go in, you know, queue up on one side and walk right out the other into retail, right? Typical model, <laughs> right? So once once you have it, a little more of an arena element that kind of that kind of changes, right? Yeah, but I still feel like the void as of now, as of 2019, is still a thrilling experience because it's so much better than. Most you know VR games or AR or laser tag. It oh, I loved it, man! Elevates them. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I was blown away by it. I mean, it started off as a research project for me um, uh, as part of my position with this thing called ATI, the Advanced Technical Interactives Group at uh, Universal, and uh, so I went to the Void for research um, and sort of fell in love with what I experienced. And because uh, I, I grew up doing uh, uh, virtual reality in arcades. And yeah, like you said, I really felt like this was the next step. So that's actually how I started my conversation with those guys and started working with them to build sort of an RPG park. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And uh, I'd love to talk to you more about that park in particular, too, um, which is already open and running right out in Utah. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. I mean, basically, it's coming up to about a year of operation. You know, the schedule is not you know, one of these uh, 365, uh, 24-7 or 12-7 models. But, um, yeah, it's uh, their lore, which is the fall show, I believe, is uh, on sale now. Um, I'm not sure when it opens. That's so cool. Um, do you know, does the Void have any connection with that theme park anymore? Is it completely severed? <laughs> Um, yes and no. I, I can't say I know the full details of it, but uh, when I worked out there in Utah, the Evermore Creative Studio was literally right next to the Void. 
uh, and at least some of their offices. And, um, you know, a lot of the team I was working with there um, had come out of the void. Um, again, it was all sort of the brainchild, this one, uh, Ken Brett Schneider, um, who um, kind of spun it into its own company. And I don't know the full details of it. Um, so it's not the same team anymore. Um, certainly there's some intermixing of the teams, um, and the ownership of it is the split amongst other folks. Um, I think the idea, I'm not even sure if it was ever opened, uh, you know, for, I hope that it does get open cause it was a neat idea. So this other project, uh, Ken had going on there, uh, was called the grid, which was in his uh, vision, uh, the next step of the void. Hmm. Um, and it was supposed to be the first void location in Utah because oddly enough, they didn't have any in Utah. <laughs> that's and weird. That's where it was, <laughs> yeah, and that's where it was born. Uh, huh. So, so not really connected, but still some connections. Cool. Long story short. No, that's interesting. And something that I think is a really natural fit uh, for Halo to kind of pick up and be, you know, the next step, the the plus version of like a void type experience, is that the the gameplay is relatively straightforward in that it's an FPS. Like there's some strategic and like tactical elements to it. And there's some cool storytelling that goes on, but a lot of the times you're running around shooting stuff. Um, but yeah, exactly. And I mean, you're familiar too at the void where you kind of, you picked up your rifle as a stormtrooper, um, And, you know, it was very, it was very visceral, right? That kind of, you were looking at it through the VR and it looked like a, you know, a stormtrooper's rifle. Uh, and it felt like it. So there's no reason you couldn't do something similar like that with Halo, right? Absolutely. And and so much of, of what's special and more unique about Halo, you know, um, helps to serve that action and the main gameplay. Like there's a real connection between the storyline and the gameplay. Um, the story is there to, to give you fuel and ammunition to why you want to play the next level. So I feel like it, I don't know, it all works together really naturally uh, in a way. And another thing I love about Halo is a lot of the kind of subtle nuances of storytelling, like where certain blood stains are, where certain ammo pickups are, or weapons you find on the ground with no ammo. Like that in and of itself tells a story when you're like, oh, cool, there's a bunch of guns over here. And then you realize none of them have ammo. And like, you know, maybe there's bodies here, like something bad happened where these people had to use all their ammo. There's basically a lot of interesting little scary, um, like war stories you can tell by just walking through a battlefield, um, and just seeing those game mechanisms of, Oh, Hey, cool. New gun, but no ammo. Like, what does that say? Or there's ammo here, but no gun. What does that say? And there's a, just some fun little like logical, uh, storytelling you can do. And even just a regular laser tag arena, which which people don't usually do because they're there just for the blasting. But we can expand this out pretty simply, I think, and still create a cool. Yeah, story. And they've they've got a load of backstory. So wherever I mean, you wouldn't even if you wanted to, you could sit here and say we're going to start at a particular moment in this universe. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd, you'd even need to bother. So like totally. you said, yeah, you could have various set pieces that are telling little different elements from uh, the various episodes uh, that have occurred in the universe. And, you know, I was never impressed uh, by Halo's, uh, should I say, meta story mm-hmm. um, or, the, or the major arc. I mean, it was sort of fun, but as a player, it never, I mean, even, you know, it just never really clicked uh, too much with me. You know, that said, it was incredibly challenging. 
I mean, they had a silent protagonist. You know, I've dealt with games with silent protagonists. It's like, we've got a hero that can't speak. Um, so, yeah, you, you, <laughs> that is this, crazy. Is, this, is, this, this is challenging. I mean, um, yeah, it's uh, it's peculiar. And you also don't see him so, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a first-person shooter. So it's a first-person perspective, and you don't get to see this character except in their hands, basically. Um, you know, every now and then you get some devices that come up in other games, say, you know, one of my favorites, this game Prey, um, uh, that was developed, uh, by a studio human head. So, you know, I guess they also did it in sort of half-life, you know, using the mirror, kind of you wake mm-hmm. up in a bathroom and you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, oh, okay, well, this is who I'm playing. But yeah, it's, uh, it's one of those things though, that now, I mean, I think so many of us are so used to kind of seeing the Covenant, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, that if we saw some Halo elements, you know, we kind of know where we are pretty quickly. Yeah, and in the first game, like, even if you try to get into, like, the corners and the back sto- background on the lore and everything, there's not a ton there for you. Like, it's, it kind of fades off into black where you don't know what the whole story is until they explore it in later games. But I think it's it's more compelling that way almost, where you're... Because sometimes people are like completionists about a game, and you know, level one, they're trying to figure out every single little corner of the world and figure out the backstory and who's that guy and you know all that kind of stuff. But you just can't find that information yet, so you have to like focus more on the gameplay and get through the main core experience, and then you can kind of try to find some of those edges and play the sequels and get more into story. So in a way, it's more compelling, I think, if there's not a long trail of breadcrumbs available at least right at, at the start. It, yeah, I, I feel like that works. And, the, you know, and there's no reason you couldn't do, you know, other types of rides with it, but I think that's one of the things that you can see if you look at, say, the, what they created for Outpost. They really wanted people to come and have the gameplay experience. I mean, that's the hard part when you know, I was working on Nintendo, mm-hmm. uh, translating that sort of a property into something like a theme park, because so much of it, really is the mechanics of the experience and how it feels, you know, uh, the, you know, the recoil on a particular weapon, um, how it sounds, right. Um, uh, what the recharge phase is on and all this jazz. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a very different than, uh, putting someone on a dark ride, say like, I mean, cause you could do, you know, the buzz Lightyear. what is it called? Space Ranger spin, Mm-hmm. Uh, bit where you put everyone in teacups and again it's sort of a gallery shooter um, and you're just kind of taking out creatures as you're kind of flying around and at the, at the end of the ride Master Chief is there and he's like good job hey <laughs> everyone's everyone's a winner there you go uh, <laughs> that's so, awesome. and, and that might be that might be kind of fun you know yeah um so I you, you know I mean one thing I think I've learned with this stuff which is what I love about your podcast is you can go you know, uh, pretty deep on this stuff is sometimes it is those baby steps. So, um, you know, maybe that's just me being kind of jaded in an industry. So <laughs> it'd be great if they could figure out how to really do a multiplayer FPS, you know, in a cooperative environment that is mixed reality. Um, but you know, that might be challenging for mm-hmm. some folks. So, and yeah, I could totally see him in, in a permanent install too uh, now. So it's interesting with the outpost model. They sort of have a museum. They have sort of some themed rooms you can go through. Uh, you can go and play Halo together in a group with a bunch of folks. Um, but it's not, say, what we at least expected 
out of Galaxy's Edge or something like right, that. Right, totally true. And I, there's a kind of a lot we can talk about, but I think some of the core like gameplay elements, if you want to call them that, like the main attractions, I think there's obviously the laser tag type thing. But if you wanted to do more uh, sort of like non-physical combat, like shooting only, don't punch your friends kinds of stuff, I had this idea <laughs> where we could do like an area that's a single-player attraction um, so, you know, you're kind of alone in a small, like, laser tag arena type thing. But then another player uh, is somewhere else sitting on the back of a warthog um, playing from their perspective, where it's like a mounted thing. They're not on foot running around. They're just basically shooting this from a moving turret. And that character could be digitally represented in the on-foot character's game. So they are trying to shoot somebody off the back of this warthog, which is... A vehicle, not the actual like pig animal for, for the listener. Um, so basically, you could do almost a duel where one person's on foot trying to chase around this driving vehicle and shoot them, and then the other vehicle is is a the player is just mounted trying to shoot this guy running around. But there's no threat right. of one person punching the other one, <laughs> getting the melee <laughs> attack. <laughs> yeah, well, that's yeah, yeah. The melee attack is definitely a bit problematic. Yeah, <laughs> you could do you, you could you could do that with a range of the vehicles. Yes, used. I mean. I mean, that's part of the fun so many times, jumping in a Wraith or, you know, a Banshee or whatever it is. Yeah, there's that, like, action figure uh, part to Halo that I like more than, say, Goldeneye or, you know, earlier first-person shooter party games. It's like, no, you can get in vehicles. Like, your G.I. Joes can hop in the whip and (laughs) drive around and have fun that way, too. It's awesome. Yeah, and and that's, you know, definitely one of the the big elements. I'm, you know... I wish I would have experienced it. I haven't, admittedly, with the Outpost. But I believe you can get in a Wraith. Uh, there, but I don't believe it has a lot of functionality. But yeah, that would be the goal that it has sort of uh, the Millennium Falcon experience. But yeah, there's no reason you couldn't run that as its own attraction yeah. unto itself as well. Every vehicle, and you know, yeah, have everyone kind of go into their own vehicle, and uh, you know, obviously it'd all be well, I guess not obviously, but it could all be virtual, sort of pod based, like um, uh, you know, the, the old school Mech Warrior. BattleTech kind of stuff where you just have everyone in a pod and it's themed really well like you're getting into one of these ships and they have some of the pre-show you know associated with uh, your training to get in one of these vehicles and yeah and, and and there's no reason you couldn't do it with multiple people if you were concerned about throughput but obviously I think part of the fun is you know I think the anyway getting ahead of myself here I guess it'd be really fun to do a multiplayer scenario uh, in a ship uh, I'm sorry in, in an assault vehicle but um, even just, you know, one-on-one could be great fun. Yeah, and, and you could do kind of the arcade experience. Like, um, I can't think of the name of it right now, but there's some arcade game where one person has a steering wheel and the other person has a gun. Because um, those two things just pair in a really fun manner. Uh, <laughs> where it'd be cool, you know, having one person drive the Warthog, one person has just a regular weapon, and the other person has the turret. There was one I was playing in the arcade recently. You know, I love going to classic arcades oh yeah i should know the title i should know the title it was some some early 90s game i thought it was weird i was trying to figure it out because it almost looks like there's three control setups but it's clearly made for two players and both players have a gun but only one player has a steering wheel uh and pedals to control the vehicle but i believe that player is also supposed to be manning one of the guns (laughs) so um it was was sort of like a cop themed bit and you were you know chasing suspects as they were getting away 
uh, and driving through like Chinese markets right. uh, on the way. It was it was it was pretty interesting. But yeah, that kind of co- that that cooperative play is part of the great fun. I mean, that's the really hard part is particularly in a you know a scaled up uh, themed attraction. You know these sort of intimate moments. I know sometimes in like ranked multiplayer, my favorite moments were actually when you see someone do something with a weapon or you know some kind of tactical combo and you go oh my god i never thought to do that before. <laughs> right learning from from your brothers it's cool exactly and then you know being able to sort of emulate that it was like you know anyway you know a, a range of moments which uh you know might be challenging in that setting and yeah that would be super fun and you could almost just reskin that arcade game you know just make an an, an update or a remake of that same basic gameplay would be pretty cool yeah, and you could just have them out there as different stations. You know, uh, in terms of a land, you know, it wouldn't be obviously too challenging uh, to to theme out really in accordance with you know the art direction of uh, the property itself, and you know whether it's like you're on some massive starship that's deploying to you know to some additional battle, or you know the ring itself, which, which would be great fun to try to pull that off. Wow, that'd be so crazy. Um, can you imagine, this is just like kind of a tangent, but if you had sort of one, there's two groups of people playing, and one is on one extreme on the inside of the Halo ring, and the other group is on the other inside, and you can like shoot up and actually hit somebody all the way across. <laughs> that'd be insane. Um, but be pretty cool. Even if you could just see the visual effect of if you look up in the laser tag arena, the you can see the whole Halo ring going all the way around. Yeah, there's no reason you couldn't do that. That that persistent sort of multiplayer is is challenging just from a computational standpoint right now, I think. But there's yeah, there's no reason you wouldn't be able to do it. And actually, in an environment like that, what might be really fun is really mix things up and have it so someone could play from home. Wow. So, uh, that that would be really neat, right? Yeah, and I like that for people who you know might be differently abled, where they don't get to go to theme parks like the rest of us who you know have no mobility issues at all, or even like sort of uh, social issues, you know, where you not feel you don't feel comfortable in big crowds or cramped spaces. You can play Halo at home and interact with someone who's actually holding the the weapon in their hands. Like that's a super cool idea, connecting people uh, through the battleground. <laughs> sort of um, a, re- a way to connect this to our reality could be that we theme this whole thing like it's sort of a Spartan training type thing where in the, in the storyline, you know, they kind of get kidnapped and taken from their own home and comforts and they get kind of thrown into this, you know, boot camp basically, which could be, you know, we're going to cryogenically freeze you, you're going to wake up on the other side in your armor and just go fight this big battle. Like, it can be kind of a quick little transition and a reason for why in one second they're at a, you know, convention or a theme park, and the next second they're a Spartan is, oh, well, there was a time lapse there, you were cryogenically frozen, and uh, you're all grown up now, you're ready to go battle. Uh, 
because yeah, this, the actual storyline supports that a little. Well, it does. It's, yeah, I mean, it's actually supposed to be you know uh, in our future. It was like three hundred years in the future or something like that. So um, yeah, no, it totally could support that. That's that's always I think one of the greatest observations. And I'm not sure if it's something that, that he came up with himself, but uh, you know, brilliant guy I worked with at Universal. This guy Neil um, would always say one of the reasons Wizarding World worked so well as a theme park is because it didn't break the universe when you were stepping inside of it. It's actually part of how, how the universe is built. And I thought that was a brilliant observation because it's part, it's part of the hard part of, I mean, Halo, you know, I think you just uh, made a, made a great uh, idea of how you do it there, but in something that doesn't take place here, like Star Wars, you know, how, how do you say, no, you're suddenly inside of, you know, you're suddenly on Endor or whatever it is. Yeah, you know, people can make that leap for a minute, but keeping up the illusion in any genu- genuine way for, for all too long is challenging. And again, it sort of breaks the world every time you step out of it. Right, and people who are kind of naturally uh, skeptics or or people who are have worked a lot in the creative arts in are the kind of people who like find the seams really quickly because they've built their own worlds. Um Making the experience as fun for those people as well. I mean, the the more you can do that, the better. The lower or the more barriers you can take away from that immersion, then then the better for everybody. I think. Yeah, you know, I mean, when I've I've looked at it, it's yeah. I mean, obviously, the you want to cater to people that I'll call hardcore. I'm not sort of so sure industry folk, but you know, hardcore players tend to be more vocal, and you know, you want to you want to have them happy. But yeah, I think little things like that on how things fit together at the end of the day really help um, increase immersion and keep someone engaged and in the space. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples, and it's maybe you know not a good example here, but um, in studying the Transformers ride uh, when I was at work at Universal, um, and I would, you know, at first I was lucky. The first time I went on it. Um, well, I won't say I was lucky, but I got to skip the line, right? I didn't go through the queue. I was kind of got a VIP sort of a treatment, and they brought us back of house, you know, held up the line and put us right on the ride vehicle, and I went through the experience. And at the end of it, I thought, well, that was that was a good time. That was pretty fun, right? I mean, it was, you know, had a had some exciting moments. It was visceral. And I didn't pick up on uh, the game elements of it, which I finally did later, and realized actually it was just a really terrible game because – um, you know, they set it up all like you're going to save the universe and there is zero interaction, no choices, no choices made. Um, and at the end of it, you're congratulated by Optimus Prime for saving the world. And I thought maybe I was just being a jaded, you know, kind of industry guy that again would see all these cracks. Cause like you said, it's true, you know, uh, you know, as, as a showman, you, you know, you know, where all the, the loose ends are, but this, this little kid in front of me, as Optimus Prime said, you know, and this kid was maybe 12, Optimus Prime said, thank you, human, for saving planet Earth or whatever he says. The kid was like, thanks for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I was like, there you go, right there, right on, <laughs> right on cue. So, even, you know, even that kid, though he probably wouldn't be able to verbalize it the way we're talking about it, and thank goodness, because I, I might be out of more work. Um, (laughs) but 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 he he knew the experience just wasn't matching up and he didn't do anything at the end of the day right um and was getting congratulated for it so you know those little pieces like trying to figure out 
to how to rationalize that your guest is in this universe and why they got there. It might not, you know, your guest might not know that, but at the end of the day, it'll help you make these, you know, other creative decisions to really make that a stronger experience. Yeah, and, and I know it's not exactly uh, feasible all the time, but, you know, we have an unlimited budget and uh, no time restrictions here, which is kind of unusual in the industry. But <laughs> in this theme park, I think doing the kind of 80-20 rule where, you know, we can spend a lot more time making it better for those few people that are going to see the, the seams and be kind of annoyed with them is worth it. Because, hey, we've got unlimited budget, unlimited time. It's like, right, right. Uh, you know, kind of like a magician who... It does a classic trick, or at least you think it's a classic trick, but if you're watching for the way the trick is traditionally done, you're like, wait, how did they, wait, it's almost like a magician's magician, like, I feel like those are such better experiences usually, um, when they don't do it the way you expect, and they kind of expect the audience to know a little bit about the way it works, and do it another way, like, I think that's such a cool, subversive, uh, high-end experience, I, I, I like that kind of I don't know. It doesn't necessarily mean anything here because it's all hypothetical, but I love when places go that extra mile uh, just for the few people who are going to appreciate it. it. It makes a big oh, difference. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, especially for core fans. And, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm switching gears here, but sure. something else that gets me excited with that is, you know, this whole esports thing that's so popular these days. And, you know, I mean, what better place to go watch someone? engaged in essentially an esport by you know playing the sort of mixed reality kind of fps in real time uh than having a, a way to observe these people wow. just like hang out and have drinks while they're duking it out on the battlefield <laughs> that'd be awesome uh, people would love it i think and um you know it allows you if you're a tier one player if you're one of these guys that actually gets out there and does the competition it also gives you a break but if you just wanted to go hang out and watch some of the more core players, you could do that as well. Um, and, you know, run different sessions. You know, this is stuff that uh, once you start getting into building kind of software, that's kind of like a video game for a theme park to start thinking about these things. You know, um, how how is this play going to change? Can we run different modes of play? You know, this is very different than, say, most theme park rides where you just do the same thing over and over, right? So... Here we have the ability to say run different maps. We could run different modes. We could say, well, this this mode we're running this time is really only for core players because we're not going to nerf anybody. Or you could do capture the flag, like some more things that aren't just about how good at shooting people are you. It's more these other kinds of game types where there's another objective. Yeah, no, there's there's all there's all kinds of neat modes, but it, yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess since we have, like you said, infinite time and money, we could probably do them all. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but but I'm sure I'm sure there'd be some limitations, so we probably have to pick and choose which modes um, we'd want really want to rep- represent uh, with these experiences at launch, um, because is you know fulfilling it to the same level of software would be uh, be pretty challenging. But I think I think if you just gave them people a place to go, I mean, you could even. I mean, heck, maybe we just skip out on the rides, man. Forget all the attractions. We'll just make it a halo. We'll make it a halo bar, and you can go there and act like you're in a Spartan training ground and just watch battles in real time on, you know, you know, ranked ranked matches online. You know, there doesn't have to necessarily be a space to play it. And you know, there could be. Maybe you can have a couple of pods that people go into, and they're just facing off against other players uh, worldwide. But uh, you know, it's essentially essentially a, sp- a themed sports bar. 
uh, where it's it's an esports bar. Right? I was picturing uh, kind of a, a concept that that feels almost like a sort of Star Wars Coliseum kind of thing, where you can have people sitting like out in the stands, like at a sports arena, but you could also have some kind of high end lounge type things that are out on the battlefield where you know there's people running around shooting around you but there's sort of you know a building or something that's indestructible in the game and you can actually stand inside that and watch people running around you and like basically have a set position on the field where you get to sit and sip your cocktail and watch people battle and fly around on vehicles all around you like whether those are real people or if it's a hologram and this is just like the World Series, you know, uh, esports represented in a three-dimensional hologram, like there's some there's some cool like sci-fi meets, you know, the next 10 years of, of high-end esports competition going on in this kind of space, I think. Yeah, that's, that's a neat observation. Yeah, I mean, I think people would be really into it. So, you know, the... Uh, the crop, the crusp, I guess, would be uh, doing it in a way that's economically feasible, so, so that you you could re, you know repeat it. Because I imagine it's the kind of thing, uh, particularly if it's a really popular uh, you know product like Halo, where you'd want to essentially be able to pop these things up just about anywhere uh, in major metro- metropolitan locations. And you know, in fact, is it would give uh, Halo geeks just a place to go and talk about Halo, you know, over drinks. You know, why watching people play Halo? It's, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, the geek's dream. That so. sounds awesome. And I'd, I'd rather do, you know, kind of some business schmoozing there than another football game. You know, it's like, man, this is at least something different and novel and more modern. You know, it's not a sport that's 70 years old or whatever. It's a sport that's like 20 years old. That's a lot more, a lot more fresh, I think. Yeah, and this is actually, I mean, for me, it's interesting. This is, you know, sort of a big philosophical conundrum in bringing what games do to theme parks. Is Because fact is, in theme parks, a lot of times we act like you're the hero. So, you know, another Universal ride, which does that uh, famously, at least for me, uh, is Gringotts in Diagon Alley. And... Um, you know, you go in there and they act like you saved the world, and at the end, everyone's clapping you on, and they're like, "Wait, I didn't, I didn't do anything at all." And there's no effect. Yeah. You know, you don't get, you don't get out, and there's no effect on that world. There's no rewards except that you went on this ride that was kind of fun, and you know, it was, it was, it was a neat ride for, for you know, too much credit to the, the folks that worked on it. But once you have people that are showing up, players that are actually becoming heroes, so to speak. Um, how do you um, allow that to happen and how do you um, uh, facilitate it? So, you know, at the extreme level, this is one of the reasons why you can't go to, say, Wizarding World or Galaxy's Edge and really be a character from these worlds. Well, at least at, at uh, Disney, because it's very counter to their model, you know, one of the the classic uh, stories, I think we even mentioned, we, we spoke a bit in our, our uh, back and forth at Gen Con, 
this lady shows this lady shows up uh, as Tinkerbell and is turned away because she's such a good Tinkerbell. They're worried that people will think that she's the actual Tinkerbell, and you know they want to have their character moments uh, with their employees that are dressed as Tinkerbell. Not only from a brand management standpoint, but also from a revenue standpoint, because they want you to pay for those pictures, right? They want you to get the photo pass and do all this. And this this sort of throws it on its head. They say the reason it won't happen, Wizarding World, uh, is that um, you know J.K. This it's classic you know authorship uh, bit. You know J.K. doesn't want people creating characters in her world and knowing people that attempted to work with her as well to create a straight up RPG. Um, at the end of the day, it just wouldn't work because, uh, in, uh, her head, or at least, you know, as it's managed, and you won't say I know JK, so I shouldn't speak for it. Uh, but the idea is that obviously the author is the person that creates these things as opposed to in the game model where you say, no, of course the player is creating their own character, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, we want to champion that character, not Harry Potter. It sounds sort of silly, I guess, but it's actually a really big, big conundrum. So yeah, so if, if we're doing that and Halo, you know, yeah, we can have Master Chief there, but at the end of the day, I was almost called the Master Chief. Uh, Chef. Um, <laughs> It'd be a different theme park. Um, yeah, exactly. That uh, you know, you want it to be about the, the people that are there, right? And um, I think you know, it wouldn't be too hard to do that in the context of a Halo universe because at the end of the day, I still don't think story is that strong there. Um, so there's not, you know, Cortana people probably have a decent amount of, shall I say, uh, affinity for people talk about Master Chef, the chief, but like, <laughs> 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 but, um, you know, I just don't think there's, he's just not that strong of a character and there's other minor characters that people remember, but at the end of the day, it's mostly about sort of the theming, you know, typical sort of uh, human versus alien kind of bit. Um, and you know you're out on the battlefield, uh, and so it wouldn't. It seems like it would be really easy to do with this universe because again, it's mostly about as we said those those core elements of gameplay, uh, getting out there with other folks and competing in this sci-fi environment. Right, and I think the main you know primary legacy for Halo is the multiplayer experience, which is humanoid characters facing off against each other, kind of like in you know sports. Or even uh, kind of darkly in like war, but that means almost everyone is equal in the way that they're competing. So if you're really good as a sport player, you can get recognized, um, even though you're using the same tools as everyone else. Your skill shines through. So I imagine in this kind of experience, there'd be sort of star players, and you know you could buy a T-shirt with their emblem on it or whatever, uh, or be holding up a banner of their emblem during a match and you get this kind of like interplay and more of a sports type of atmosphere, um, which would be kind of cool. I don't know. You, you almost create sort of your own Tinkerbell. <laughs> that metaphor doesn't exactly work, but <laughs> that's an actual human being who is, has, you know, just maybe better skills than you, but the same exact tools in their arsenal. So after you're inspired by your hero, you can just turn around and play in the next match, which I don't know. It's really empowering and really, almost uh, democratic, pointing out that, hey, anyone can do this. That is a human being out there, not an actual Spartan. You know, that's that's someone who also lives in Toledo, Ohio. They're just really good at this game. So keep practicing. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, increasingly, the more we talk about the esports aspect, makes the most sense, really, um, particularly with how popular they are these days. Yeah, I th- you know, you could have have some themed areas, but generally, the whole idea is, you know, this is this is a virtual coliseum, right? Which could be huge for something, you know, for for Halo, but also something like Overwatch, you know, which is kind of becoming, oh yeah, you know, blurring the lines almost between traditional sport and esport. Like there's jerseys, there's uh, regional teams, there's there's a lot more of that mass marketing kind of reality component of it, which is kind of exciting. Um, but yes, yeah, so we didn't explore too much of the story and specific enemies and stuff like that, but. We're kind of talking big picture here now, and, and, you know, we can add on the flavoring and more specifics and actually design the levels down the road. But right now, you know, we're just pie-in-the-sky phase one development here. Yeah, I mean, as much as I would like to pretend we could redesign better Halo levels or better Halo maps, I mean, fact is, that's not what people would come there for. And I think this this is sort of part of the challenges, I'll say, uh, and translating game properties into themed entertainment. You know, there's a, a lot of love for, say, Rainbow Road uh, and Mario Kart <laughs> or, um, you know, just particular elements from any number of games that players just sort of expect to be there. And not only expect to see it, but they expect to interact with it in a very specific way. And this was always sort of one of uh, the things I would bring up in these contexts is to say hey well we got to remember that this is an interactive so it's not like other properties that you might license we are just talking about characters and stories you know this is something that someone has a a conversation with and they're used to a certain rhythm and cadence associated with that interaction and translating that over i think is probably one of the bigger challenges because you know it wouldn't be too hard to you know throw some halo stickers on something get some dude in a spartan costume and kind of pretend that you're doing it um but really uh you know really feeling like you're picking up you know even just one of the hand grenades and tossing it you know having that feel some some kind of semblance to what you're used to experiencing in the game i think I think it's pretty important because otherwise it becomes a different game, Mm -hmm. right? Totally true. And and just like you can't make a one-to-one recreation of Rainbow Road safely, you know, we don't necessarily need to recreate a, I don't know, eight, eight to eight plus hour long game because we don't have people's attention and time for that whole amount. You know, they're going to get hungry and need some food. We're not all actual Spartans here. So we need to create people's favorite parts in a brief form where it feels right but isn't one to one. Well, and this is, you know, part of of the uh, you know conundrum, I guess, and just having enough people. You do this, you know, at scale in a big place where you're having sixty thousand, thirty thousand people. Let's just say ten thousand people come through in a day. You know, this is why most most rides, you know, you're on them for two to five minutes at most. I mean, that would be a long ride, really. So yeah, this starts to become something different. If we're talking about sort of a uh, arena experience, but even then, yeah, you don't want people out there too long. So you'd have to tune and probably create entirely new game modes uh, for that particular uh, style of arena play. Yeah, absolutely. And and what you could do actually, which would be kind of neat, is after you've designed the theme park and you have the actual arena, recreate that one you know exactly in the video game, kind of working backwards in a way. Um, Sure, it might not be the most popular map online, but 
it's the one you get to go play on your vacation next month so you should at least try it out you know oh yeah or like you know bonuses right so some kind of whether some kind of in-game incentive or on both sides where you say hey you've 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 unlocked this achievement so next time you go back to you know i'll call it the arena uh which is copyright trademark (laughs) um you know you get some kind of uh, you know modifier bonus or a special weapon available to you or you know some kind of i mean it doesn't have to be much it can be totally cosmetic yes i think players would be really into that well as we know too i mean players are i mean sometimes i mean maybe it requires a different sort of a player but you know it's sort of the need for speed bit you know it's amazing how much time people will spend customizing something even if it is just for looks um i think i take it for granted these days particularly with a lot of crpgs and computer rpgs um you know but you sit down with someone you know i just tend to skip over a lot of character creation these days because i'm just not that interested in it i kind of want to get to the meat of the play yeah and there's so many games too right well but if you go with you know a lot of folks well i'll call uh uh your average joe and, and sit and play with them they'll spend a good amount of time just sitting there and like man you are still modifying this character um <laughs> but you know it's kind of like you know playing D as a kid you know and still these days you know i mean you can spend a couple of days just on your player character really yeah absolutely it's the it's the thing you get to control completely because you know day one playing that character they might lose an arm or you know fall in love like something totally unexpected might happen uh where you have this precious little amount of moment to sculpt your character so get him just right and then he'll get totally wrecked tomorrow um but that's part of the fun yeah awesome man um is there anything else you want to add to the halo theme park before we start talking other stuff no, I think I think we did pretty well with it. Yeah, I mean, we could, like you said, we could drill down and you know talk very specifically about you know what a particular map would look like. But again, with with something like that, it's I wouldn't want to tell another Halo story. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to necessarily. I mean, maybe that it could facilitate that. But I think the idea is just quickly transporting someone to that universe and putting them in situations that makes them feel like uh, they're they're experiencing the video game is really what it's about. It might seem obvious, but I think it's, it's uh, more challenging than it seems. Yeah, and I would say with, with most franchises, most uh, like licensed uh, experiences like this, if you fall in love with the lore and it's your first exposure to Halo, you can go home and go online and there is so much cool stuff that fans have put together on wikis that will keep you enter- entertained with the lore you know, for years. We don't need to do that in the theme park because you're only there for one day anyway. Um, so we're just going to have a really, really good appetizer, uh, and you can love it and experience it while you're there, and then go explore the lore and the backstory and watch the movies and everything at home. That was really fun, man. Dang. But I w- I'd love to, to uh, talk about and kind of promote Giant Lands. This is your top secret <laughs> theme park that you're working on. Um, can you tell us about like kind of where that idea came from? 
Sure, yeah. Well, I mean, I started working in translating some of my favorite games into park experiences. Um, and eventually I started working on one that was an original IP and uh, trying to bring a sort of role-playing game experience to that property, which is Evermore, um, which, which raised a lot of interesting things uh, from a creative standpoint, because I get to, you know, from both sides of it, really. Yep. So, uh, so yeah, so I started working on translating RPGs into theme parks um, uh, while there, and, you know, it raised this bizarre internal yearning inside of me growing up uh, playing a lot of RPGs. Um, and uh, after I left Evermore, um, you know, it, it took me a while to get there, um, but I kind of moved back to Wisconsin, uh, where uh, a lot of my extended family is these days, and just kind of was hanging out and doing stuff I was interested in and found myself connecting with uh, some of my favorite designers from TSR, people whose materials actually were really influential on me all my life, really. But even so recently as when I was at Evermore Park and, um, you know, one of my favorite books is TSR's Legends and Lore uh, from, uh, uh, I believe it was AD&D second edition. Um and, uh, you know, by this guy, James Ward, uh, and obviously did a bunch of other books pretty early on. But, uh, yeah, now I'm fortunate enough to have uh, James as a creative partner on this project. Uh, so I, I like to think I can do it better uh, than than other folks. And that's, you know, part of the silliness that uh, makes us be entrepreneurs is mostly saying, hey, I'm sort of dissatisfied with the status quo. I know really what's possible and I've seen sort of both sides where we have these really extremely large budgets like say at Universal versus much smaller budgets at a place like Evermore and kind of have seen the problems at both sides of it so I like to think that with what I'm doing now um, it, it can lead to something that's a lot more uh, akin to the kind of experience that we'd like to have as RPG players uh, in a live space. Cool. And so how did you get connected with these legends? Like, are you just hanging out at a local game store and they just kind of walk in the door? Or how does that, that connection happen? It's a couple different ways. So, again, I've worked in games for a long time. And I always tell people it's, you know, something I think I'm terrible at. I have a really, I don't need a network. I know a lot of people. I just am not the best at using my network, I think, or at least using it well. Um so admittedly, uh, with say these guys, I, um, uh, so I went to this event called Gary Con, uh, in the spring of last year and it sort of, I mean, it brought me to my knees really because I was there in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where all this stuff was born, not too far from where I live now and, uh, just had a sort of a, a reckoning moment and, um, started connecting with some folks there. Um, but actually, I was online in a forum about uh, one of my favorite games called Gamma World um, that TSR put out, which uh, James is behind. And there was this one guy posting, and I never really paid too much attention, but I just would look at the content sometimes that was being posted. And I thought, man, this stuff is way too good. Uh, so I said to him one time, man, you should stop posting this stuff. It's, you should publish this. This is quality material. And I realized who I was talking to. 
uh, and he was, you know, uh, one of the original creators of some of the adventure modules uh, for uh, TSR, particularly for Gamble World. Yeah, so I, I met this guy, Kim, Kimber Eastland, and um, he said, well, the only way I'll work, I'll work with you is if you get uh, Gamma World and uh, James Ward. So I started, he put me in contact, admittedly, with James, uh, and uh, we just started talking. And, uh, you know, for me, I was really excited to just be talking to these legends uh, and kind of told them some of the stuff I've been working on. And, you know, for them, I'm the theme park guy because uh, that's what I've been doing recently. So um, it's, it's a fun thing to do. And, you know, no one's really done it. So I like to think we'll be the first to market with it. Obviously, other people would probably get to market a lot more quickly, um, but I don't think it'll have the same creative strength. You know, I'm now working with these guys that created Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, uh, I actually have a Gygax, Gary Gygax's son, Gary Gygax Jr., is now on the project, um, and uh, it's it's just really exciting. So, in my mind, I think uh, we're going to do this right. Uh, obviously, it's a hard challenge uh to get to the point where you're actually building a park out uh but i believe we can get there and it's one of these things too it's odd you know the feeling i have about it where it's i like have to do it it's it's going to happen um it's uh it's sort of a strange feeling i feel very assured about it um despite how sort of insane that i know it is uh so it's you know there's this this element in me that says maybe this this is my destiny. So if I could just get this to work, I don't think I'd have to do anything else in the rest of my life, and I'd be happy with that. I'd make it make this awesome awesome game and an awesome park. You know, like even if it was just small time, I I wouldn't mind that. Like you every you know in this industry, which I'm still relatively new to, I, you know, I guess they say you know Nolan Bushnell always talks about in about three years you could be the to the 90th percentile in terms of an expert in a particular subject. No, and I won't say I'm a, an expert in all of themed entertainment, but in, in this subject, I think I'm an expert in it just because of, you know, the work I've done. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's something that I just sort of have to do. So you look at, you look at folks that have, you know, what was it like? There's, oh, there's so many of them, just these tinier parks. Like I'm, you know, I'm here in Wisconsin, we've got Wisconsin Dells. And I look at some of these attractions people are running. And I'm not too impressed with them, but at the end of the day, they still operate, you know, they're still profitable. So if I could just get this going and have it operating and profitable, you know, I don't need to be competing with Disney and Universal. That's, that'd be great fun. And I'd love to have the money to, to play on that level. But if I could just create a great park, you know, with a great core game um, that is built with this talent that really feeds uh, the needs of uh, tabletop gamers and cosplayers uh, yeah. in a park, I'd be really excited about it. I, I think that you can accomplish so much with kind of unlimited possibility and a low budget than you know low possibility confined workspace and a high budget. So on paper, it sounds like the right way to get set up, and you've got you know tons of of street cred and credibility within the industry. So you know if this was a Kickstarter, I'd already be like. Get to, get done with the video. I want to pledge. You know, I want to get on board with this. Like, it just sounds like such a cool concept. I appreciate that. Well, that's the idea. So eventually, we'll do a, a Kickstarter uh, with the idea that in the spring, I'm you know I'm going to launch a box set. I actually have 
you know, the original kind of Dungeons and Dragons red dragon on the red box. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's by this guy, Larry Elmore. And so I've, I've got <laughs> Larry uh, working uh, with me on our key art for our box as well. But wow. yeah, so we're going to launch a starter set uh, in the spring. So this would be like a boxed product, like a tabletop role-playing game kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay, cool. So it's kind of starting out as a um, produced experience, and eventually it'll become a, a destination experience, like that kind of escalation? Yeah, well, I mean, the way I, I speak of it is we've got our sort of home experience, our tabletop experience, although we're blending live-action elements with it, So, but I don't want to call it a LARP. That's much mm-hmm. more of a traditional uh, tabletop game with sort of theatrical elements. Um, so that snowballs into sort of live events um, that you can run with your friends and, you know, that we can run officially on, on a larger scale. So let's say you next year when you go to Gen Con, you'll be able to go play it, you know, in a room, um, not so much at a table, but, uh, you know, in costume as characters interacting with other characters. Um, yeah, and with the be-all and end-all being a park. I'm calling it a game park. Uh, you, you say theme park and, you know, it's a theme park, but, um, uh, you know, it's some people come to it with certain assumptions. And I, I like it calling it a game park. I've, I've been with some people in recent, uh, really just recent months. It's like I've been meeting with some folks that it's like they're just coming out of the woodwork. It's sort of mm. amazing. Uh, and uh, so this one group I met with, they had a whole team that's sort of dedicated to figuring out what they're calling live action worlds, uh, which is essentially uh, what we're talking about here. Um, and uh, uh, it's uh, so it's just a, it's an exciting time. And yeah, I think uh, people are really trying to figure out how to make it happen. And so for me, I think a lot of the solution starts in creating a product that's intended uh, to transition over into live play so that you're, so that you're not just remapping uh a license onto sort of a themed world so that by the time you get to the park, uh, assuming that you've played or have friends that play, you know how to, you know what to expect. You know how to make a character. You know what that interaction is going to be. Um, and uh, you can make some more informed decisions, especially with, when you're dealing with an original IP um, because people aren't going to show up and, you know, expect to see Dorothy or, or whatever it is, you know. Uh, but we want them to we want them to show up and understand you know bring their character with them um, and something that they developed that they can now play out in, in real life so to speak uh, with their friends. Wow, and that's kind of like what we were talking about during the theme park design portion of the podcast about like spending forever on you know your CRPG character or your tabletop character as opposed to just a generic Spartan that you play as in Halo and at the theme park. It's you get to sculpt your your personal creation and then bring them out to play at the physical space. Like, yeah, that sounds ideal. That sounds like the best of both worlds. Well, you know, I got pretty deep on it, um, really particularly Evermore. I've you know I've always been sort of relatively deep from a kind of ludology standpoint with uh, studying uh, what RPGs are, and I really believe first and foremost, really a lot of what are, what they are as role play is playing with identity, right? Um, being able to craft identities and experiment with identities uh, in a safe space. There's a lot of people who are, for example, in the the trans community who started out as having an avatar they were able to customize of a different gender than the way they were born. 
and realizing through this play it has changed my life and who I am and how I want to express myself because I found who I really am through this. Mm. And not just not just like the trans community, but kind of all of the sort of other kin out there. You can really get a lot. Um, your personal growth can come from these kinds of experiences of character creation. It can be a really magical thing. Figuring out who you are and who you aren't, um, it's, it's kind of one of the easiest or most approachable ways to do that in our modern society. So it's a really important thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, a big, big lesson for me was just sort of going to some of these more traditional game conferences uh, recently. And you realize how nice most tabletop players are. Now they can get pretty grognard, you know, and you know, they, they, they love the rules for the most part and this, that, and the other thing, but they're very welcoming. Um, they're very friendly. They just want other people to play with. And I think a lot, a lot of it sort of comes with uh, the territory where, you know, as a kid, I, you know, I experimented with all kinds of characters. I never really, you know, uh, took it as a lot of a projection on who I was, but so much as I'd love to just play and jumping in and out of the shoes you know, not only as a player character, but probably maybe as a DM has helped me even more because you have to play a bunch of characters over the course of an adventure. Um, you know, it gave me a great sense of empathy. You know, they talk about empathy machines these days, which is sort of cliche, but I really believe that's what RPGs are. And yeah, once you once you change roles you, and say, okay, well, now let's switch up the roles and I'm X and you're Y. Um, uh, they're just natural ways to, to drive people to sort of have some kind of empathy for the other. Uh, and so as opposed to a lot of video game communities, which frankly are, are pretty hostile, you know, um, and very sort of machismo and, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, if culturally it's just a, or sociologically, I guess. Um, it's a it's very interesting to sort of pay attention to those two different attitudes. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, unlike what we were just talking about, the Halo stuff with, you know, everyone trying to be the, the biggest, hardest Spartan. Um, sometimes it's, it's fun to play those odd characters or it's fun to try out, you know, to, to say, hey, I'm going to be a female character or I'm going to be a male character or whatever it is. Or I'm going to try to be another species entirely. Right. Um, and um uh, when playing those roles, it's not always about being that, that typical sort of uh, jock beefhead, if you will. Right. It's about what, what kind of tools are in your tool belt or what verbs you have access to, whether it's, uh, you know, how creative can you be when you're just trying to shoot someone until they're dead versus like a tabletop game where it's like your tools are words. So express yourself, express your, what your intentions are, and you know, interface with another character with a different background. Like that is, that takes so much more finesse and you can learn so much more from it. And it's a lot more engaging unless you're really hardcore, like a pro athlete type of mindset of I'm going to kill this guy so good with so few bullets. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) You know, those both take some artistry of course, but, but one of them has a more positive outcome, I think in the end on your, on your personality and who you are. Yeah. Well, there's this book I always love to reference. Um, by this guy, James P. Kars, I believe is how you say his last name, and a, a political theorist, uh, economist, um, working in game theory. Um, it's called From Finite to Infinite Games, and um, or Finite, in, Finite and Infinite Games, forgive me. And um, 
so I, I, I sort of adopt this philosophy to how I see most of the universe, really. And, um, yeah, a game like Halo is definitely a finite game. Now, you could argue that single player isn't, uh, but it's, uh, you know, a game uh, where there are specific uh, rules, everyone's sort of in an agreement of them, and at the end uh, there's a winner um, that in that case is refereed by the computer itself, right? So very clear win and lose states, some rewards for that. Um, and this is sort of what a, a finite game is. An infinite game, on the other hand, is more about finding boundaries and pushing on them and finding new spaces. So, I, you know, this is, this is what, uh, what I love about RPGs is, um, you know, really about discovery and uh, finding uh, new kinds of interactions and new stories that you experience with others. Not so much, you know, oh, I, I've just raked up so many experience points and look at all the gold and rubies I got from slaughtering that dragon. Yeah, that's that's great, but at the end of the day, it's you know the the real fun comes in that story that you experienced over the course of committing that action. Wow, yeah, that's very true. I gotta check out this book. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it's really neat. It's a it's a great book. Does Giant Lands have any connection to Gamma World? No, I mean, it, not in any real way. So I'd love to get the Gamma World property. Property, I think it's terribly underused. Um, but Dungeons & Dragons has had its best year ever. Um, so I don't think it could be done uh, without having a lot of money and or clout. And I wouldn't be surprised if they're working on some stuff uh, internally. They've tried to reboot the property a couple of times. I think the, the best version was the third edition that came out in the mid to late 80s. Um, so no, this is not affiliated with TSR um, or Gamma World. Well, TSR is no more, but uh, Wizards of the Coast or, or Hasbro in any way. Um, but yeah, I'm working with uh, you know some of the original talent behind it. And it certainly takes a lot of its inspiration uh, from what Gamma World was. Yeah, so, you know, Giant Lands, as it launches, is a tabletop RPG box product, very much akin to, say, your Dungeons & Dragons, and uh, is, um, I won't say a traditional role-playing game, but it's certainly based on a lot of traditional role-play with the focus of becoming, you know, a live-action uh, game world uh, that you can step inside of with your friends, if only just, you know, wearing a costume and running around your kitchen uh, to... Uh, actually attending a party or a themed event uh, as a character to engage in interactions uh, as, as part of building this world uh, to eventually coming to a place where you can stay uh, for you know any number of days and sort of live in this world as a character or a series of characters. Wow. Dude, that's super cool. Thanks. Uh, it, have you thought about potentially after the box product having like organized meetups throughout the country like at conventions or something like that like bring your character to this you know uh basically preview type event like a small scale so yeah that's the whole idea so uh is to is to start with that because that's also a lot more uh, feasible from just an economic standpoint so we can yeah. we can organize and run these things 
Uh, and yeah, that's the whole idea. So my goal right now is to be able to run one of those at Gen Con next year. Uh, that sounds that sounds super cool. I love the the idea of of being able to take this character you've created and meet up with someone in the pretty coming up, you know, pretty soon. Really, like, what's your perceived uh, timeline or your proposed timeline for this this kind of expansion and the the actual box product coming out? Well, box product, you know, the goal is to release it early next year uh, with the hope of uh, starting to run live events by the summer. Wow. Um, in terms of uh, <laughs> building out an actual park, it sort of depends on a range of factors. But I keep telling people, realistically, it's probably three or four years out. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's that's totally understandable. And I think getting the box product in people's hands is is obviously step number one uh, after designing it, of course. But, but as far as the audience's uh, engagement you know, you can definitely start small and every big, you know, blockbuster superhero movie started out with a single issue of a comic book at some point. Like there's, there's a lot of, uh, of interest and, uh, kind of street cred that comes from starting in a kind of smaller scale and ending up as this, you know, gigantic behemoth. Uh, it's kind of cool and it's neat to enjoy every step of that as you sort of scale up over time knowing that this is issue one, no matter what happens in the future, this is it. This is the launch. It's just such a magical thing, man. I, I love that. I'm, I'm so excited for you. It sounds fantastic. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's a, it's an exciting thing to be doing. And, you know, it's just sort of like all these factors have come together and it's, I don't know, it's so much of what I've done all my life that there's just, there's no other way. And I, I tell people too, I mean, even in my talk, I mean, yeah, I'm adamant that this can happen with giant lands uh, and I'm going to make it happen with Giant Lands. But it's, I feel like it's really just a natural evolution of where we're going. And whether it be with this product or others that I or others develop, someone's going to do this right. And, yeah. uh, and it's going to take us, take us all by surprise. Um, so I, li- I like to think this is the one. Um, and, and if it's not, you know, no, 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 not too much sweat off my back for it. It's, uh, uh, just exciting to try to do this, and I know the learnings from it uh, will take me to new, new and greater places. But uh, you wow. know, uh, I have a, I have a lot of confidence in it, and uh, you know, oh, just like it's, I tell people, sometimes it's sort of just like watching this puzzle kind of fall into place. So mm-hmm. I actually try not to push it too hard at this point because I just want it to happen, and I feel right. like if I just let it happen, uh, it will. And, um, you know, especially after building something like Evermore Park out in Utah, which I really enjoyed, I started thinking, man, why don't we have anything like this back where it all started? Wow. Yeah, that's a good point. It is cool. Like, where are your kind of perceived or uh, proposed location for the Giant Lands theme park eventually? Yeah, that's challenging. So um, I would say the places that we've been talking about is putting it close to a major metropolitan area uh, somewhere mm-hmm. here in Wisconsin. Um, my leanings tend to be over towards doing it near Lake Geneva because of the ode to TSR and to role-playing games. Wow. And then we also we also have some spots here that are tourist attraction areas like the Wisconsin Dells and whatnot. Um, you know, various casinos and whatnot have also been brought up. So, you know, uh, I would say we're not too firm on it. Uh, you know, obviously it needs to be a place that's, I mean, I, you can play it both ways, I guess, make it sort of hard to a- access and that's part of the fun. But obviously you want it to be in a place where people can uh, have transportation in and out relatively easily. Um, and uh, particularly after 
witnessing some of the stuff I've seen at both parks. You know, you need to have a, a group of players that lives locally that's going to help you sustain it, especially if you're not near uh, major tourist hubs. And, you know, Evermore Park is a, is a really neat thing. It's sort of close to Salt Lake City and sort of close to Park City. But at the end of the day, most of the people that are keeping that afloat are the locals there uh, in Pleasant Grove in the area, Provo, around it. Um, so, you know, uh, Florida is sort of the opposite uh, where it's got this major tourism base. So you, you can, uh, if you, I mean, that's one of the reasons, uh, well, I guess Walt sort of made it a more of a destination, really. Yeah. Because it, was, it wasn't so before that. But, you know, it becomes a destination where people go, but especially... Uh, if you don't have that sort of clout, um, you know, having it sort of close to some other things that people are going to and just sort of siphoning that off. It's, I mean, that's basically how Orlando works these days because it's a major tourist hub. So even when, you know, Disney knocks it out of the park with a particular show element or new ride, that actually helps everyone in town mm-hmm. and, vice, and vice versa because it just brings more people. So totally. if you can you, you build something in that kind of area, you know, um, it's it's going to help your business and uh you know let's say that's that's the real challenge is in a place that doesn't have tourism is you know building it to scale but i think there's you know there's all kinds of examples of different business models that work in smaller markets you know uh i always actually get inspired by weird little things like mini golf owners dude people that yes i'm so with you on that and they're able to do it and some of them are really themed and they're you know they're great businesses and people support them and they come out for them and you know some of them last for ages so um you know it doesn't have to be you know walt disney world and you know there's people naturally that keep telling you some of our plans now they're like no 12 acres wouldn't be enough this has to be 65 acres (laughs) yeah 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 that's just Whoa, deep breaths, deep breaths, buddy. Right, right. You know, if, if, if we can just get it happening on one acre, I'll be very happy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because things can always scale up. I would always say this to a lot of my game design students because they'd come to me wanting to create an RPG, naturally. And they would say, oh, my God, it's going to have 600 levels and there's 3,200 types of monsters. And you could be 300 different characters and all the planets are procedural. <laughs> And it's going to be like a 600-hour campaign. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You know what? I want you to go, and I want you to make one exchange of interaction, or maybe one encounter. Mm -hmm. Make that good. Make that one encounter with the creature good. And then we can worry about about scaling it up. Yes. You know, and and if you can do it 6,000 times over the course of a few hours and keep that engaging, you know, God bless you. Uh, Mm -hmm. But what you really need to focus on is just creating a moment you know i, I think at uh, electronic arts they would sort of call it the x uh which is supposed to be like or a vertical slice of a product um and um so that's sort of where my aim is right now if, if we can just create um the feelings that we need from a small set of encounters in a in a real space uh, which is what we're getting to we'll be able to scale it up and we'll be able to say yeah people get people to say yeah i want to go back and do that that's, that's something i want to go engage with again uh, and if you can't do it once you know you're not going to be able to do it a few hundred times wow yeah very well said that's beautiful wow 
Dude, I'm I'm so excited about this this future. Um, and if the audience is is excited about this, where can they go to follow along with this? I know you're you're really good at social media. It's like super engaging, and you're really active, oh, which I really appreciate. It's it's a skill I wish I had. I, yeah, it's uh you know come through a lot of hard work and trial and error, doing bizarre things on my own. So uh, <laughs> uh, so basically anything slash giantlands or giantlands dot com. Um, you can uh, check out more what we're doing. I have a Patreon or Patreon, I guess, um, available now and still kind of tuning that. But the idea is that's if you really wanted to get insight into this and be some of the first folks to play it, um, that's the that's the way to do it is uh, sign up on Patreon. We have a series of tiers and you get different rewards for the various tiers. Uh, we're also uh, running it for the first time at Gamehole Con in Wisconsin um, at the end of October. Uh, and you can come and play uh, this new game with the legend himself um, at the convention. So James uh, M. Ward, uh, my design partner on it, will be running it at Game Hole Con. I'll also be running at Gary Hole. Or Gary Hole. Ha ha. Uh, Gary. Uh, <laughs> that's something that. else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, running it at Gary Con uh, in the spring. So, um uh, yeah, so the, you know, if you want to come out and play it that way, but if you just want insight into the process, you know, um, there's there's the stuff we're starting to do online, and um, you know, slowly but surely ramping up a lot of the efforts uh, on social and other and other spaces as well. Wow, how awesome, Stephen! Thank you so much for being on the show, man. That's like I said, most qualified guest ever, and this was an amazing episode, man. How oh, cool! Oh, uh, thanks, man. Yeah, no, I'm super excited. To, <laughs> just to be chatting with you. And I tell you, I mean, just meeting you and, and hearing what you're all about. It's, it's like, it's again, it's just another one of these puzzle pieces. I'm like, yes, this guy is on it. He actually knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy to see someone who's kind of doing this in reality. You know, the show from the, its inception was a hypothetical, uh, what would the coolest theme park ever be? And it's never been very realistic, but now it's getting to the point where reality is starting to catch up. And, you know, you're right on the cusp of that, which hopefully in 100 years, this is all common practice. But seeing that cutting edge, like where it's starting to meet reality is like kind of dreamlike and kind of amazing. And I'm just, I don't know, I'm, I'm glad we met and I'm glad you're on the show. And I think it's a bright future. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's a real honor. <laughs>